Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Just two verses. We'll begin reading at verse 4. So we'll read verses 4 through 9. As we remember the call to rejoice in Christ. Leading into our passage this morning, verses 8 and 9. This is God's holy word. He gives it to his people for our good. Without error and perfectly sufficient to accomplish all of his purposes. Give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. When I finish reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond with thanks be to God. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Beloved people of God, as we look out into the wider world today, something that we see happening again and again is the consciences of people are coming into conflict with the perceived freedoms of other people. One of the ways in which we see this is in the medical field. There are doctors that, because of their consciences, because they have a a good sense of what we would say, a, a biblical view of the sacredness of human life, are very uncomfortable doing any number of things that now fall under the realm, the umbrella of Healthcare, But often what we see people say is that I, I have freedom to do this, I have freedom to do that, and if you stand against my freedom, in other words, if you disagree with my freedom, you are a threat to my very existence. This is evidence that we live amidst the ruins of a moral culture. We see it decaying all around us. It reminds me of the, the words, the famous words of John Adams. American founding father, when he said this, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. The reason he said that is because you know if you create this this realm and society of freedom and liberty, if that is not supported with personal and moral responsibility or a deep sense of those things, you're going to see decay and you're going to have all kinds of problems arise. It seems to me that there there used to be a stronger sense of uh, raising our young people to be good citizens. Now we're having a a conversation about what good is and what a citizen is, and so we can't even agree on what a good citizen would be. 
I was reading a book by Noah Webster, who gave us Webster's Dictionary. He spent a lot of his life thinking about virtues and ethics, living the good life. And I found this striking. He wrote a book uh, to young children. It's a a moral catechism, he called it. Interesting uh, title for it. He says this, In all your dealings with men, let a strict regard for truth and justice govern all your actions. Uprightness in all your dealings secures confidence, and the confidence of our fellow men is the basis of reputation and often a source of prosperity. Men are always, I found this striking, men are always ready to assist those whom they can trust. A a good call to, to trustworthiness and of being the kind of person that contributes to the good of society. I say all of this because in this passage we have this very interesting list of qualities and virtues that we find littered all throughout extra biblical literature in the time that the Bible was being written. Questions on virtue and ethics and how do you build a society. All of these things that Paul lists in this passage are found in places like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and other uh, famous philosophers and less famous philosophers. It causes someone to ask, who, who, who knows these kinds of things, is, is this passage, Paul, is he just calling us to some kind of common or societal virtue? To be ethical in a way that is sort of universally accepted. Well, I think partially that may be what he is doing. But primarily, of course, his view is on the people of God. And uh, what we find is that those who are truly good citizens of their earthly temporary home are thrust forward to see ultimate truth and beauty and goodness as it is shown to us in Jesus Christ. Christ. So as those who are forgiven and renewed by the work of Jesus Christ and through his blood, if we seek to honor God in the way that we live our lives, we will ultimately always bring glory to Christ as we seek to be a virtuous people because it will be by imitating his virtue and by seeing his beauty in our salvation. We'll unpack all of that, but really the main idea today is set your mind on the Savior. Set your mind on the Savior, because all of these things that Paul is naming for us, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, ultimately where they lead us to is Jesus Christ, who is the end of all of these things. So set your mind on the Savior. And when we do so, we see the connection to last week's passage, that call to unshakable joy. Unshakable joy is found partially on dwelling on the goodness and the perfections of Jesus Christ. There was an early church father who once famously said, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? In other words, what does Greek philosophy have to do with the pursuit of salvation according to the Bible? The the two things don't seem to have any agreement at all. Well, here, we at least have something along those lines. As I said, you, you find these virtues, these qualities, named all over the place in virtue ethics and uh, books that were written at that time. These are words that have to do with value judgments. What is good? How do you know what is good? Well, you have to make a determination towards what is good. How do you know what is true and what is beautiful? You're making judgments unto those things. 
And so, uh, what we're called to is to set our minds on the true and the good and the beautiful. Interesting to think about that we, we live in a day and an age now that is you know, what we might say morally decadent, as I said earlier. And in an age where there's all kinds of competing opinions about what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. As the apostle calls God's people to live in these kinds of ways, what we are actually doing is creating a testimony to a rightly ordered life lived before God. As you look around the world and as you see people living in our world today, one of the things that we are seeing is that the hopelessness of all of the alternatives to Jesus Christ grow ever more clear. There's a hopelessness to all of the alternatives to Jesus Christ, and that is getting ever more clear to people. And as we are God's people seeking to show forth the true and the good and the beautiful, what we do is we create a testimony to the, to the goodness of a rightly ordered life, lived before God and lived in Jesus Christ. As we build families and households unto the glory of God, it becomes a testimony to God's goodness because we say only by God's grace can we do these things and live this way. It reminds us of the Heidelberg Catechism, doesn't it, where it says by the way that we conduct ourselves through God's grace and through God's sovereign will, we may win our neighbors for Christ. So as we live seeking the true and the good and the beautiful, and setting our minds on those things, it creates a testimony to the goodness of a rightly ordered life. So this first set of commands, fix your thoughts on all of these things, all of these virtues, all of these qualities. Uh, As we unpack all of what those words mean, it's important to not miss the thrust of a command. Paul says, think about these things. Set your mind on these things. It's a deeply Christian practice to be sensitive to what we think about. That's a deeply Christian practice. The Psalms uh, speak of this over and over and over again, particularly Psalm 119 speaks a lot about what you set your mind on and setting your mind on God and his word. Psalm 119, verse 55, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. Psalm 119, verse 148. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise to fill your mind with the things of God. What do we set our minds on? First, whatever is true. Whatever is true. We live in an age where the very question of truth is raised. Is there truth? Can we know the truth? Do we have access to the truth? Does it dwell outside of me? In many ways, we all live knowing that there are universal truths. If you go to the top of a skyscraper and you throw your cell phone off the top of that skyscraper, we know, save for some kind of intervention, that is going to tumble down to the ground, hopefully not uh, hit anyone on the way. It's going to smash into a million pieces. To be people of the truth, is to be people grounded upon the truth that God has given to us. And it is to live with the conviction that God has given to us a reliable record of truth in his word. God's people are to live with the conviction 
that there is truth. And not only that, we are to live as people who are truthful in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, that our lives would conform to the truth. So we are called to dwell on those things which are true. Secondly, whatever is noble. Something or someone noble possesses qualities that, res- that command respect and awe and reverence. Greek gods in the Greek mythology were described as noble if they were particularly uh, heroic or respectable. Beautiful cities were described this way. I was thinking about this this week and I, I was uh, thinking about our sanctuary. And I, and I love how when we come into this place, there's a, there's a sense in which our eyes even are sort of lifted up. You see the beautiful work in the rafters. is sort of this heavenly thing that... Uh, brings our eyes up to the heavens, and there's, there's a nobility to this kind of architecture and buildings that are built this way. Three uh, groups of people in Scripture are described as being noble. Deacons, deacons' wives, and older men are all commanded to live with this kind of nobility. Because in the midst of God's people, you are to carry this respect and this reverence from a spiritual maturity. I was watching parts of a sermon this past week given by Andrew Brunson, who was this missionary who was imprisoned in Turkey for preaching the gospel of Christ. And he was giving this sermon to his, his entire denomination's general assembly and speaking about the battle for joy and joy in Christ that he had in his prison cell in Turkey. Very convicting because he's talking about how he needed to come to God and confess his sin and how he wasn't actually being filled with joy in Christ at first when he was imprisoned. Understandable, right? And so here, uh, mostly Americans who hadn't gone to Turkey and had kind of lived in the comfort of all that God had given to them over the last several years, listening to this man speak, and it was the, the conviction of saying, wow, this is a noble man of spiritual maturity. What is noble? Set your mind on it. Whatever is right, third, whatever, set your mind on whatever is right, There is right in this world and there is wrong. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. To know that there is that standard which God has given to us. Fourth, whatever is pure in popular usage outside of the scriptures, this word for purity had to do, it was a virtue for someone who faithfully discharged the duties of an office. You know, a publicly appointed or elected official who did everything that they were appointed to do and they did it well. They did it with sincerity. In biblical usage, this word for pure often has to do with sexual purity, something that lacks defilement. A pure person is a sincere person. And those can be in great demand today. People who live with sincerity who live with the conviction that they live first before God. And thus they do what they have been called to do and they do it well. Fifth, whatever is lovely. This is a word that is not so much an ethical word, it's more of an aesthetic word. It has to do with appearances. 
things that are beautiful in appearance. The Sistine Chapel is lovely. It's lovely. I've never been there, but after many centuries, it's, it's a painting up a, in, in a church that still takes people's breath away. And to think of uh, what it took to actually produce that kind of artwork is stunning to people. It is lovely. There's an aesthetic quality to it. Sixth, whatever is admirable. This is another aesthetic term, something that warrants admiration. So as we have said, these are terms that Paul, in, in some interesting and perhaps mysterious way, he borrows these from Greek philosophy, from ethical books that were not scriptural. He says, give your attention to these things and meditate on all of these things. What are these virtues and qualities and who or what possesses all of these things? Is Paul calling us to some kind of common social virtue? Is he just saying, okay, kind of go out and just be good citizens in this city, seek to be good people? In a sense, he is saying that, we, but we get there eventually. But in order for us to get there in a biblical way, we have to ask the question, who is it who possesses all of these qualities in his person? I think you know where I'm going with this. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who possesses all of these qualities. We'll get there in just a minute, but secondly, here's this. So first, set your mind on all of these things. Secondly, discern what is ultimately true and good and beautiful. Notice, uh, before he goes on to verse 9, he says this, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, the structure is changed there a little bit. He says, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. And then he says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy. He changes the structure in order to make a key point, it is this. We are to have discernment in determining what is true and good and beautiful. And that discernment that we have in discerning the true and the good and the beautiful in this world is God's standard. What God teaches us in his word will often come into conflict with what the world says is true and good and beautiful. What God says in his word will sometimes have resonance with what our society says is true and good and beautiful. And we need to have the discernment to know what is the difference. Radical individualism, the idolatry of self-identity and self-identification, the pursuit of all meaning in the self. I'm the one who determines right and wrong. No one can tell me how to live my life. These are the kinds of things that this world, the world in which we live, often holds up as good and we say, no, that is, that is not good. We are to seek discernment. How? By going to God's truth and conforming ourselves to God's truth. I return to Psalm 119 to make this point. It says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all of the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. You see how it's a psalm that's saying you go to God's word and it forms you. It shapes you. It makes you into something that you were not before. And here's a huge thrust of these two little verses, and it's this. What fills our minds 
will steer the whole of who we are. What fills our minds steers the whole of our persons. What we prize in our thought life, we will prize in our lives. What we prize in our thought life, we will prize in our lives. We're called to have a unity of head, heart, and hands. A unity of head and heart and hands. And that can only happen if our hearts are rightly ordered before God. A lot of us think we have this this sense, we convince ourselves that perhaps we're not accountable for what we think about if we do not act on these things. But the heart and the mind, this is where lust and greed and pride set up their reign in our lives. These are the things for which we must repent. And it starts with dwelling on the right things that we might live with head, heart, and hands unified. So first, think about what is true and good and beautiful. Second, discern what is true and good and beautiful. And then lastly, imitate the one who is true and good and beautiful. In verse 9, Paul calls the Philippians and, and in a sense calls us to imitation. He says, I taught you about the Christian life. I taught you about Jesus and then I showed you about him. I declared him to you and then I showed him to you. I had the the image there of a a father uh, taking his son and sort of putting the hood up on the car and explaining to him, here's the parts of the car, here's what we're working on today, here's how you do it, explaining to him very carefully, here is how you do this, here is why you do this, and then showing him, right? Explaining and showing That's what the Apostle Paul has done. And we ask with all of that in mind, what was it that Paul declared to them and Paul showed them? Well, he's already told us in the book of Philippians, hasn't he? What is the good life according to the Apostle Paul? What is the good life? Philippians chapter 1. My hope is that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, that Christ will be honored in my body. Not myself, not my name, but that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. The goal of his life was to live so that the life of Christ would appear in him and through him. That was the good life. He said, I count everything as loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And so here he calls us, and if we're going to understand this long list of virtues that he gives to us, we're not going to understand what he's doing unless we see the end to which they are all pointing. Truth, beauty, goodness, purity. Where do all of these things end? They end in Jesus Christ the true treasure of our souls. All of these things that we're called to have something to contribute to a life well lived, but they all find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Who is the one who is ultimately true? He's the way and the truth and the life, Jesus. Who is the one who is ultimately good and just and right and pure? And so as we seek to live a life that honors God, We must center ourselves upon the work of Jesus Christ. 
All of these things point us to the Savior. Set your mind on the perfections of Christ's work for you, so that you may, with Paul, say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So that you may, with Paul, uh, enter into that deeply Christian practice of dying to yourself. Because all of these things that we're talking about in our Christian life, in our life in Christ, only can happen by the grace of God. And we have to know that. It's not that we sort of uh, put our bootstraps on, pull ourselves up, and we make it happen. No, we need to center ourselves upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ because it is God working in us in the glory of the gospel in order to produce this life that is pleasing to him. A virtuous life that accords with the things that are universally true and good and beautiful. And so in closing, then, we see that faithful practice assures God's presence. He gives us this promise of gospel hope as we close. He says, the God of peace will be with you. Think about these things, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. God is the God of peace because he has reconciled us to himself through the blood of his cross. He is the God of peace because he reconciles us to one another. Remember how this relates to the beginning of chapter 4 where he's called these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, to reconcile to one another. Stop being at odds with one another. Come together, reconcile, and make peace for the good of the church. The God of peace is with us as the peace of God reigns in our hearts and as we seek to make that peace known to those around us, particularly those who are in the church. Specifically, we know that the God of peace is with us in the Holy Spirit. For what is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is peace. So the closing assurance here is to remember that because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts by faith, the God of peace dwells with us, in us, and produces the fruit of peace. How do you set your mind on all of these things? You set your mind on Jesus Christ. And as we dwell on his perfections, the grace of God overflows in our lives and in our hearts, and God creates all of these virtues in us according to his standard. What is true according to God. What is right according to God. What is lovely according to God. And then all of the rest of the issues of life can take care of themselves as we live our lives faithfully before the face of God. All by his grace and all by his power because of the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love by which we have come to know you. And we pray that by your grace you would empower us to love you and serve you more. We pray that we would set our minds on the Savior and think about the perfection of who he is for us. We praise you in all of these things. We pray that you would build us up through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.